You're listening to the Modern Web Podcast. For more podcasts, videos, and events, find us online at modern-web.org or follow us on Twitter at modern.web. That's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Modern Web. I'm one of your hosts, Tracy Lee. You can follow me on Twitter at Lady Lee. And I'm joined by my co-host today, Nacho Vasquez. Welcome, Nacho. Hi, Tracy. Thank you for having me co-hosting. I'm excited over here. Yes, we're so excited too. Where do we find you on Twitter? Oh, you can find me at, um, at uh, NachoBasquez14. And yeah. Awesome. So yeah, we have a really special guest today, one of our favorites, Nader. Uh Nader works at Edge and Node, and you can follow him on Twitter at Dabit3. Uh, Nader, do you want to just quickly introduce yourself? Yeah, totally. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> um, yeah, my name is Nader. I've been in the like software world for about 10 years, but I've actually like switched specialties like four times. And today we're talking about the thing that I'm currently like doing, but I'm really excited about. It's kind of been, you know, been the big switch and focus of my career um, uh, about six months ago. And um, yeah, currently working in the blockchain Web3 space before this I was at AWS for over three years, leading the developer advocacy team for front end web and mobile. And before that, I've done all types of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, we love you for all the AWS work you did, obviously. But um, I'm so excited about the work that we've seen you do lately because I feel like it's starting to pull, you know, JavaScript developers into Web3. And it's like the hot rage right now. So I know you focus a lot on the Ethereum ecosystem, right? Is that like generally going to be your focus right now? Is that Edge and Node's focus, or you know, are, are you are you branching out, or are you just going to be Ethereum, Ethereum all the way? Yeah. So like when I first started learning about the space as a developer, the first thing I wanted to do was kind of to build an app. And um, right now, the majority of the blockchain ecosystem um, building out actual like real real applications is done for the most part on the on the EVM, which is the Ethereum virtual machine. And it's kind of like the JavaScript of uh, blockchain development. So it was kind of really the first place I became interested mainly um, because like I'm always looking for like what is that Pareto principle like 8020? like what can I learn the um, the easiest that can actually like allow me to do the most? So um, early on, that's been Ethereum just because there's like so much um, out there. There's a lot of learning material. There's like really, really high quality tooling. There's, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of apps and, you know, hundreds of thousands of developers. And, you know, you can find an answer on Stack Overflow and that sort of thing. And um, the more that I've kind of like learned about the ecosystem, the more I'm starting to now become interested in a few other areas outside of Ethereum. But I think Ethereum is kind of like the... Um, you know, a lot of times it's the hello world of, of blockchain development because you can pick up solidity fairly easily if you understand um, typed languages like TypeScript or, or really like it's just an, a fairly easy language to kind of get up and running with. And um, there's a lot to talk about as far as like the trade-offs of Ethereum and kind of like its scalability and, and what's happening there around um, gas prices and things like that being really high. But um, in general, like you can learn how to build with Ethereum and then you can actually take that skill set and build on a lot of other blockchains that that have different trade-offs. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's excellent. I want to personally thank you about all the documentation that you have been creating uh, for developers around the the Ethereum ecosystem. And but I, I also noticed that you have been working with Solana and maybe taking some interest interest with Avalanche and 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 the near protocol. So, what is like the tweets that you are looking in a in a blockchain to be interested in start developing at it? So like when I first started becoming aware of blockchain in general, like 2015-ish, I was just speculating. Like I was just like buying, you know, as an investor type of thing. And the first thing I became interested in back then was like Bitcoin um, because it was kind of like, you know, at the time, the most well-known thing. And um, it wasn't really until like late 2020 that I started actually investigating and understanding the technological problems that were trying to be solved by some of these. So um, at that point, I started actually becoming more interested in things that allow you to, to write ex executable code. So smart contracts is kind of like what they're known as, but in reality, they're just kind of like programs that can be um, deployed to one of these decentralized networks and executed by anyone in the world that wants to interact with it. So um, again, like when I first started learning, um, Ethereum was what I was interested in. And, um, you know, the more that I've learned about the space and the more that I understand and, and being around other experienced people that have had success, I think the future of the world and the blockchain world is actually kind of like what they call multi-chain, meaning that like you have many blockchains that all succeed in parallel and they all have their own uh, benefits and, and they all have their own trade-offs. So um, what is really great about Ethereum is that it's been around for, you know, for, for a long time, like five or six years, I think, or, or even longer than that. Um, and it's never really like gone down or anything. So like, you know, there's never been um, an outage with Ethereum. There's been, you know, forks where they've kind of like changed the code base and improved it. But like, it's, it's like, if you think about some of the problems that you have in the web two world where your server goes down, like you never have to worry about that with Ethereum. It's just like really robust. Um, again, I kind of mentioned the fact that there's like tons of documentation and it's really easy to build. But like the problems that you're starting to see is that uh, tra the transactions per second that Ethereum scales to is um, not nearly enough to sustain the demand right now. So like five years ago, there wasn't a ton of people using it, but now you know, there's literally, you know, everyone that is aware of, of blockchain technology often is probably aware of Ethereum and, and Bitcoin. Those are kind of like the two that most people now know at this point, see celebrities talking about it and stuff. And uh, I think the, you know, you hear different numbers, but I think the transactions per second that Ethereum can scale to is only like 35. So therefore, um, there has been a lot of um, other things that have sprung up that try to solve a similar problem that allow you to have smart contracts. Now, like Ethereum is actually going to be um, merged into a new version of Ethereum called Ethereum 2. And I think it's going to happen at the beginning of 2022 or maybe at the end of this year. And in Ethereum 2, um, well, there's actually a couple of big merges. One is going to be sharding, which is basically going to split the chain into 64 separate uh, pieces, I guess you could say. And it's going to allow it to scale 64x from where it is at that point. And then there's also something called proof of stake, which kind of change the, changes the consensus mechanism from the energy inefficient version of proof of work to something that is um, basically extremely energy efficient that 
is called proof of stake. And it's going to move from what I understand the transactions per second from where it is now to over 100,000 transactions per second with um, with the mer merge of proof of stake. And then sharding should make it 64x from there. So like, you know, once those things happen, the the scalability will be a lot a lot better. But I don't think anyone knows the transaction costs. So right now to, to write a transaction, it's, it's on the Ethereum layer one, it's like a few dollars, like sometimes five to $10, sometimes like $100. And that's just uh, gatekeeping to me, like almost the entire world. You're, you have like this this really small minority of people that can actually use it because who wants to pay $10 or $20 to write a single transaction? So um, like we're going to see what's going to happen with Ethereum uh, 2, like how how much this changes that transaction costs. But I don't think it'll, uh, at least I don't know for sure, but I don't think it's going to get to something like less than a penny per transaction, which is kind of like, to me, um, the ultimate goal. Because if you want to have um, true like um, uh, interoperability for like a money layer for sending payments, uh, microtransactions and things like that, it needs to be like a fraction of a penny. Um, so what are the the opportunities or the answers for that? Well, there's other blockchains and you mentioned a few of them, Avalanche, Solana, uh, Phantom, Near. Those are all interesting to me because they all scale to at least like 5,000 to 100,000 transactions per second. And uh, a lot of those have transaction costs that are like fractions of a fraction of a penny. Are those like proof so, of, are all of those proof of stake now then? Is that is that why they're able to scale to that many transactions? There's, there's different reasons. Um, they all are proof of stake um, uh -huh. or, or proof of history. Those are the kind of like yeah. that you see. But they're, but they're all... Um, you know, having their own consensus mechanisms. And the consensus mechanism is kind of like the, you know, I would say the techno technological difference between all of these different blockchains. Like how do they actually um, allow a transaction to be written and how can you achieve consensus among the other nodes that this is the proper thing that needs to be written? Mm -hmm. So like the, you know, when, when someone comes up with a new consensus mechanism algorithm that they can actually implement, like that idea alone can be worth billions of dollars because if they can actually implement it into it into its own, you know, chain, then you can kind of like maybe solve, you know, that next level of scalability or, or provide a solution to that. I heard there's like, and you know, you're deeper into this. So uh, the, the Ethereum 2, um, and things moving to proof of stake. Does that mean everything's going to move to proof of stake in Ethereum too, or is that like partially or what? Yeah, pretty much. Um, once the merge happens, then like everyone is going to be automatically. Um, given, and it's for sure that. happening. Like yeah. end of twenty twenty one. Yeah, or? they already have it running on a test network, um, uh -huh. and they've they've already have like. I think literally billions of dollars of Ethereum locked in for people that are going to be staking. Like, and it's right. proof of stake because you take your Ethereum and you stake it, and like you're you're essentially like now a miner if you're staking your money with one of these nodes. And right. then um, basically the idea here is like in the past, the transaction was proved proven by whoever can kind of like run the most um, number of these algorithms to kind of come up with this number that is basically going to be the answer to uh, decode some like hash. And mm -hmm. it's very it's very kind of like energy inefficient because all you're doing is having like these millions of computers like running 
computational, like, you know, extensive. Well, so many um, people have invested no in it, right? Like you look at all the people, you, you look at all these like super machines that people are buying and these, um, you know, I don't know, processors or, you know, all that stuff that's happening. And I heard there was like some uh, pushback because, you know, there's these people and companies that have invested, you know, millions of dollars in the proof of proof of work concept. And then now all of a sudden proof of stake is happening. Like, are those people, do, what, what's going to happen to those people? Like what happens to that entire ecosystem? Yeah. There's a lot of people like that are basically running businesses and, and stuff that are making a lot of money off of proof of work that right. are just going to be, you know, they're just going to not be able to do that anymore. But like uh -huh. at the end of the day, you like, you know, it, it's not sustainable. It's not like, you know, it's not where the future is. And in my opinion, like five years from now, we're going to look at these proof of work, uh, you know, consensus algorithms, right. the same way we might look at coal or, or, or something like that. You That's know, kind of sad though, isn't it? Years, like imagine if you just like spent like millions of dollars on this and then they're just like, just kidding. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's how, how technology works. Like we improve, we evolve. And if that was, it was a gamble. I mean, you know, honestly, like, you know, I would be, I would be investing like in the future. Like if I had a you know million dollars, I wanted to do something, I might say, okay, what's going to be like the next big thing? Um, yeah. and, and then I might invest in that now. And when that comes around, then I'll be taking advantage of it as opposed to like, you know, so yeah, I mean, I, it is, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm cool with it because I'm like, you know, I think like at the end of the day, you want to be doing things that are like, you know, benefiting society, like in general in a positive way. That's and true. I think that it'll, it's easier to get buy-in also from other people because one of the big problems that, uh, blockchain has is that uh the environmentally unfriendly nature of some of these right. uh, mechanisms we, we need tesla get, to, like, to be back points. into it <laughs> yeah <you get> talking <laughs> points to people that like hate it so like yeah. you know taking away like the 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 negative thing is also taking away the talking point because like it's true like yeah that's that's not a good thing so let's get rid of it but like yeah. as far as like there's yeah. one other thing that we didn't really touch on i think in the scalability solution mm -hmm. um yeah. discussion around like ethereum is like there's also these things that are called layer twos yeah. Um, and there's also something, uh, these things that are called side chains and there's like discussions around like, what is the difference, but essentially they have another layer that, um, is running on top of Ethereum that basically allows people to have a lot less expensive and a lot faster transactions. And then these transactions are kind of batch written down to the layer one of Ethereum. So you have things like Arbitrum and Optimism, which are uh, layer twos that, um, allow you to have transactions. So let's say um, we have like 100,000 transactions on Arbitrum um, that would then be rolled up into a single big transaction that, that's written down. So like that one transaction costs $100, but you have like 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 transactions that are rolled into that one. So then you could kind of like do the math there and see that it's going to be, you know, uh, a few cents um, to kind of do that. So like you have all these things happening all at the same time. You have layer twos. You have the um, scalability uh, that's built into the layer one that's going to happen. You have these other <laughs> blockchains. So like everyone's like doing all this stuff and it's kind of hard to really keep up with uh, with what to focus on. So there's at this point dozens of blockchains and each one uh, has, you know, dedicated teams that all believe in what they're doing. So it's kind of really interesting to see. And it's overwhelming if you want to kind of try to learn all of it. <laughs> I, I am very curious about that uh, exactly because uh, I know and I hear about all these uh, layer two and layer three and, and side change that it allows you to um, reduce your fees and increase in, in, in the transaction 
throughput, but how different is really to implement a smart contract from dimension into one of these layers, uh, layer one to layer two? How, how is the different then when you're trying to approach this? Uh, or is transparent to you? Is something like you just program that and you aim for one of these uh, layers or is something that you have to focus exactly and maybe a different API for this kind of stuff? Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, the cool thing about these layer twos is that literally nothing changes from the developer perspective and really nothing really changes from the user perspective except for the fact that they need to get their money uh, onto these other layers. So um, for instance, you have Arbitrum, for example, and you have Ethereum and you wanna move your uh, Ethereum and use it on Arbitrum, you have this thing that's called a bridge. And you basically are gonna say, okay, I wanna lock up this Ethereum into this smart contract. And then when that happens, it's gonna release some Arbitrum into my address. And then you have your, your same wallets that you use all the time anyway, like MetaMask or whatever. And um, all you have is like this network tab in MetaMask and you just pop it open and it has like a list of like 20 networks or 10 networks. You just say, okay, I want to switch to Arbitrum. So you click there and then automatically you're now on Arbitrum. So like the user experience is very similar. I think the the biggest um, like friction point is getting people's money across these different bridges into these other layer uh, layer ones. And I think the key, I'm sorry, into these other layer twos. And I think the key to like making that um, easier to, to, to happen, and I think that's going to, the thing that's going to actually make this um, become more, of a uh, industry-wide or a worldwide adopted thing is that the exchanges themselves are going to offer a way to 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 do this. So, um, you know, you let's say you have like uh, fifty thousand dollars in Coinbase. Uh, mm-hmm. If you can just send that money directly to your Arbitrum address, that would be a lot easier than actually having to kind of like go to one of these bridging places and then bridge it to Arbitrum and wait for it to show up in your account. So, I think like a lot of the um, exchanges are going to start adopting this. And I'm and a lot of people think maybe in a year or two that um, it'll kind of like be everyone is just using the different layer twos because it's going to be so much cheaper. Like, you know, like why would you pay $10 when you could pay a few cents or less? And uh, we're going to kind of like look at, you know, these uh, layer ones. Like if you use one, you're like basically flexing on everybody because like, why would you do that? <laughs> or maybe you'll look at it like, um, I think I heard this in another podcast, like riding a horse, like, why would you ride a horse when there's like a car? So yeah. we don't know if it's going to look stupid or if it's going to look like you're actually just like wasting money for no reason. But yeah, we think that in a year or two, um, that no one will be really using the layer one. It'll be almost like sending an ACH transfer instead of using something like uh, square cash or something like that. That's actually really interesting because what I hear, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, is um, the the chains are really allow, or at least MetaMask is like really allowing you to not have that sort of like I, I don't want you know vendor lock in or chain lock in, right? It makes it actually quite easy, which is which is nice for the ecosystem. But I'm I'm actually kind of surprised because I would I would think that there's like some sort of value in vendor lock-in or no chain lock-in i guess (laughs) yeah i mean metamask is basically like anything on the ethereum virtual machine like evm so you can use avalanche Mm -hmm. um ethereum you know so it still is like ethereum 
it's still like Ethereum focused. You can just yeah. switch between the Ethereum ecosystem. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And then you have Phantom, which is kind of like focusing on um, Solana. And then you have other, you know, wallets. So you still do have that like chain lock in in a sense. Yeah, you kind of do. It's, it's, I guess it's just not coin lock in. Would that be the right way to think about it? Yeah. It, it would be super interesting to see if someone could build a wallet that was like, multi-blockchain that allowed you to pretty much interact with any of these networks. Yeah, mm, interesting. Yeah. And I, I know, and it's one of the other of the big names that are out there that we haven't mentioned, which is Cardano. I know that Cardano is doing a lot of effort in trying to do this very simply, like this inter-blockchain inter, inter interaction. Um, however, I, something that I want to to, the, to talk to ask you about uh, Cardano is that I know that Cardano is very soon is going to release their smart contracts, and and they choose Plutus, which is like um, a language built upon Haskell for building their smart contracts, and they are aiming for uh, all the goodness of the functional programming side of things. But do you believe that this is also like? Um, something negative that might be too hard for developers to get into the to the ecosystem and start developing because they need to go into Haskell, which is not such a, a known uh, programming language or paradigm as more as others? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, to me, I always kind of like look at JavaScript as kind of like a really great model for something that isn't the best thing in the world, but it became really, really ubiquitous because it's kind of like you learn once and you can write anywhere. And the same thing with React, you know, with React, someone can learn React and they can write uh, a web app and a mobile app and a desktop app and a, and like AR and VR, like literally like just a million things. So like, if you have like an hour to learn something, do you want to learn the thing that you can write in one place or you want to write, learn the thing that you can write in a million places? And I think that's the same thing when it comes to uh, this blockchain space. And I think that, the disadvantage of Cardano and Solana and all these other chains is that like the complexity to get up and running is, uh, is, is, is not only like um, a lot of times just you learn all this technology only to write in this one place, but all, but often it's actually even harder than solidity as well. So the thing that I've been trying to learn lately is Solana development and to learn Solana, you have to learn Rust and you also have to understand all the other tooling. Um, and I found it, um, extraordinarily hard compared to the Solidity ecosystem. Um, so, like, I think in order for someone to switch over to something like Cordana or Solana or one of these others, the the trade-off has to be made up um, in some way. So, like, Solana, and, and I'm not, I don't know enough about Cardano. I think it's in the transactions per second of, like, 5,000 or something like that, maybe. But, like, let's say that you you do learn this I think like, you know, you have to have like that 10x value proposition. So um, Solana is, is extremely fast, but you also have uh, less decentralization there. I don't know, again, enough about Cardano to kind of speak to it. But the, the, the biggest challenge is going to be finding developers to build programs because like the more programs and the more tooling and all that that's out there, the faster that organic ecosystem growth happens. So like people say, follow the developers. Um, if you can get, a lot of developers building there, that's great. But I think it's just, you have already, uh, I think the, the the player to beat right now is definitely the Ethereum virtual machine. Um, just because again, there's just so much, you know, tooling and, and, 
and uh, existing smart contracts and all the stuff people can just continue to use. But I think it's going to be really interesting to watch what happens in the next year. Like I have no idea who's going to um, be better or worse off a year from now. Um, it's going to really, I think, really matter how Ethereum 2 rolls out and the implications there. If they're able to kind of like scale the transactions per second and reduce the gas costs, um, it's going to be uh, pretty tough to beat, I think. Um, but also Solana, if Solana can kind of improve their tooling and um, and create really good documentation to show people how to build out these apps, 100,000 transactions per second is, is, is pretty amazing. Um, and I think Cardano is actually shipping smart contracts or they maybe already shipped them just recently. So I'll be keeping an eye there as well. Yeah, definitely agree with that. Um, okay, so moving a bit to to a different to a different topic, uh, I have been seeing you interacting and, and talking about Gitpod and and GitHub code spaces, and and I was really intrigued when I started to read about that, and it's kind of very good to what we were talking about but i want you to introduce what what they are actually are first and then we can dig up a bit into that yeah yeah totally um so you know one of the things that i do like that i've been doing for a long time now really since um six or so years ago just writing blog posts and, and like teaching and, and open source code bases for example projects and stuff because like it's just been something I enjoy doing. And one of the things that I really liked about uh, Gitpod is that you can basically like eliminate a lot of the problem that people often have when they're trying to get set up with a project. So like you typically have to say, okay, in order to do this tutorial, you need to have like this version of Node.js, you need to have like this thing installed globally and you need all this other stuff. And I think it's like fun for uh, maybe uh, intermediate to advanced level developers, but for the beginner level to intermediate developers, it's often like actually a hard thing to get up and running with. So you have this like big friction point. So with Gitpod, uh, all you have to do is just create this like configuration file that says, hey, um, you need to have like these things installed, or you might even be able to like write the scripts to install those. And um, it basically has this automation step where it'll, it'll look in that file and it'll go ahead and download everything and have it ready for you. And um, and then all that user needs to do is just click a button and then they can go ahead and start playing around with and, and writing the code. And to me, like the first time I experienced Gitpod, it was kind of like a holy shit moment. Like I will never go back to not using Gitpod in any of my projects. Just because like, um, I, I've even worked in teams where I've spent like days trying to, to get my environment set up. Uh, whereas now they can just basically program all that into like a Gitpod and I can just open it and start working immediately. So it's a huge, huge boost in, um, you know, developer experience. Um, it's a huge productivity boost, but it also really, really lowers the barrier to entry for new developers that want to start like writing code. And to me, that's the thing that is most interesting to me. Yeah, and it sounds like a, a, a perfect a perfect mix with blockchain because sometimes when you're trying to develop one or these uh, blockchains, whatever, you have different configurations. Sometimes it's hard to follow the kind of configuration that you need to go through to to get something working. And and when I just read this, and I I, I have to say I, I first uh, heard about this uh, from you, I say, was that aha moment like. 
I had been doing in the run all the time. I what I need is this. I need to set up my environment here and start like developing here and going my life and my team life easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I felt I felt kind of the same way. I'm like, and then I kind of I'm thinking, wow, like a couple of years from now, will I even do any local development or will I just have something like Gitpod? Because what's the point of even having unique things installed on your local machine when in reality every project often needs something different and then if you can just like have that all available in the cloud then you can develop from any machine anywhere anytime you don't have to like do anything you just like start writing code and um i'm a huge fan of it of gitpod so yeah if anyone wants to learn about gitpod i have a couple of uh youtube videos and, and a blog post also on uh, free code camp and, and one more thing about blockchain development with uh with Gitpod, you can basically program to go ahead and run like a, an actual um, blockchain node. So an Ethereum node, for example, you can just have that. So like when you start the project, it starts the Ethereum node, it, it deploys the contract to that node, and then it finally will start your project. So you can kind of just like start writing code and you can, uh, you know, you can use the RPC address and MetaMask and all that stuff for local development. Yeah. So um, we're running out of time and definitely did not want to miss out on the opportunity to talk about uh, the work you do on the open graph or just generally stuff at Edge and Node. So maybe you can give us like a summary of, you know, what's going on there? Why does it matter? Like why, why you joined the company? Why you're excited about it? Yeah, totally. Like um, the graph and Edge and Node are the two teams that I work the most closely with. And when I left AWS, I actually, you know, was also kind of like keeping my eyes open for all types of opportunities. And I had some really great opportunities, actually, that were like, you know, um, very high senior, you know, principal type of level things. But instead, I actually joined Edge and Node, which was like a company that I had just started a month before I joined. So everyone was like, you know, what is going on here? Like, what is, you know, what is this team and what is this company? But really, um, it was me investigating different teams for over a year and, and different projects. And this is the one that I thought was the most interesting with the really coolest future and maybe some of the most um, intelligent founders that I have really talked to before. Um, and Edge and Node is a team that was spun off of the Graph Protocol. So the Graph Protocol is a blockchain protocol for indexing and querying blockchain data in GraphQL. And they, they started this protocol back in 2017, I think. And they they successfully built it over the course of those few years. And then they launched it with their own um, you know, token, their governance token. And with that successful launch, they created this, this team of Edge and Node. And part of the work that we do is support the Graph protocol as software engineers, but also in general, like supporting the, the Graph ecosystem and community and stuff like that. Um, so Edge and Node is a, a, a separate company or a separate team. Part of the work that we do is supporting the Graph protocol, but we also do other things. So we, um, we do things like we're building out a couple of uh, uh, blockchain adapts or de decentralized apps. We do a little bit of like venture. So we have like a venture capital arm that we do some investing in and other teams. We do generally support the Web3 ecosystem, like awareness, like some of the talks and, and writing that I do. They basically pay me you know, to, to do that, which is pretty cool. But um, the thing that I found the most interesting about the graph protocol and, and what I wanted to, to, to why I wanted to work on it 
is like, first of all, like I've been writing GraphQL for uh, over four years, I think at this point, and the graph protocol um, uses GraphQL. So that was kind of the first reason I became like, I just even was even aware of it. And then I started diving into it. And essentially the graph protocol provides a really critical piece of infrastructure for the Web3 space. So like we have all these blockchains that we've been talking about. And that the reason that um, a lot of these blockchains become successful is because they have really, really efficient um, write operation transactions per second. So you always hear us talking about transactions per second when it comes to, to blockchains. And that's because like everyone is working towards having the most uh, efficient way to write data, but no one really is focused on the reading of that data. And when you think about um, a database or an API in the Web2 world, all it is optimized for is for reading and writing. So when you read something from DynamoDB, um, AWS might be talking about, oh, you can query and uh, you know and get single digit millisecond latency. But when it comes to blockchain data, it's actually no one really like talks about that because really the the core problem is getting that right that right uh, you know the number of writes per second. Um, and, and, and kind of the reading of the data is kind of like an afterthought at that point. But when you think about how this data is stored, it's you know, stored in these blocks that are written over time. So you might have a blockchain like Ethereum that has five or six years of information there. So how do you actually read that data? Um, well, in the past, basically teams would create their own local servers and they would go and they would read all of the data from the last five years and they would store it in their database and they would create like an API endpoint on top of it. Um, and this was kind of very resource intensive. So like if you wanted to just build out an app and play around with something, if you were just the average developer, essentially impossible, like if you weren't just already a really, really high quality engineer. Um, also, it kind of breaks the idea of what decentralization is in the first place. So most of the time people building in the blockchain space, they care about decentralization. So taking all of this data and storing it in a single database breaks the idea of decentralization, but it also creates a single point of failure. So like the, the great thing about blockchains is that they never go down for the most part. You know, uh, Solana actually did go down, but that's a different discussion. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like, how do you actually build something that allows you to have a very high performance query layer? And that's what the graph protocol it, uh, provides. It just allows people that are the average developer to write, um, you know, some not crazy amount of code, like maybe a hundred lines of code to kind of get started building out an API uh, layer on top of some uh, smart contract data. And you deploy it to a decentralized network of nodes. And they basically are reading this, this uh, subgraph is what it's called. And in the subgraph, you're kind of describing, okay, um, this is a smart contract that I'm interested in. I want you to read all of the transactions that have ever happened. And I want you to save them. And these are my GraphQL types. And I want to be able to query these types. So um, a, a great example of this might be an NFT where you have uh, a, a token type and the token has like an ID and it has a URI for the information. And you basically um, just deploy this subgraph. It reads over every single transaction that's ever happened. It stores that information and, and makes it available. And it's now uh, can be served from a decentralized network of nodes that are all running that same API. So if one of those goes down, you can actually you know, not have to worry about your infrastructure going down because it can then be served by someone else in the network. And you know, this is essentially kind of like a core piece of infrastructure because as this entire ecosystem grows, the more people that are gonna need to build out these front ends will exist. So we're kind of like, you know, you could think of it as almost like an AWS um, type of 
play in this in this ecosystem. Yeah, it's extremely useful. Uh, I I read about it a bit, but now hearing your explanation, it start to I start to have a lot of these uh, ideas of projects that you can build upon. That uh, it, you are right now focusing in Ethereum, right? Uh, but you have plans to extend to other blockchains, or you're already working into different blockchains. So right now, the graph um, supports. All, I mean, not all, I would say most EVM compatible chains. So Ethereum, Polygon, you know, a lot of these um, um, other uh, Arbitrum, you know, uh, layer twos and stuff. Uh, the next one that we're actually working towards support right as we speak is Near, and then after that, Solana. So yeah, we're 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 also looking to expand outside of uh, just Ethereum and EVM, and um, ultimately we want to support all of the different blockchains, um, and and ultimately like have a way to query all of the world's public data in general. So we want to go beyond just blockchains and, and anything that is um, available publicly. So IPFS data, um, you can think of stuff like there's Ceramic, which is a you know a, a decentralized uh, storage layer that is not on chain. You know all that stuff in the future we would like to support. That is so exciting, and I love the overlap of. I mean, I think it's like anything that makes you feel kind of like at home, right? So, um, you know, for those of you listening, I mean, if you've used TypeScript or even .NET, right, which is a strongly typed language, or is it C Sharp .NET, you know, whatever, that whole ecosystem, you know, you're going to feel pretty good about Solidity. Again, it's so crazy because if you just watch like one YouTube video on deploying a smart contract, you're going to be like, oh my God, why did it take me so long to do this? Um, be careful though, because I've heard that there's like some, uh, make sure you're looking at something reputable. I heard that there's like some people who like followed tutorial, have followed tutorials online and it's like stolen money from their wallet. Have you heard of that, Nodder? Like, um, Yeah, I mean. Yeah, I know it doesn't happen like often. Like solidity. Yeah, check out the Solidity docs or maybe look at smart yeah. contracts that are like in production because that's the cool thing about most of um, every smart contract that's out there. It's actually publicly viewable. Um, yeah. You go to something called Etherscan and see all the code. Um, the, the coolest thing to me when I first wrote Solidity was the idea of actually like transacting money directly without needing like a million um, APIs like Stripe and all this stuff. Just like right. one line of code, I can say, send Ethereum from this address to this address and one line of code. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this like gets rid of like literally hundreds of billions of dollars of like unnecessary infrastructure that we had to build just to make yes. this happen. And uh, that was kind of like the aha moment that I think a lot of people have. But like um, one thing to keep in mind is that like when you're deploying a smart contract to like a live network, you often need to, to, to deal with your private keys. So like what some people might do is hard code those. So like the one thing I'll always recommend is like never hard code your private key anywhere. Mm -hmm. Store it as an environment variable and, right. uh, and and never put it somewhere that you could consider possibly sending it to GitHub because there are bots that basically do nothing but look for private keys. And, and if, <laughs> if you send a private key to GitHub, it can, your money's gone probably in a few seconds. Yes. So be careful out there. Um, but then also seeing like, you know, when I hear GraphQL, I'm like, oh man, you know, JavaScript developers, I think all of us should just start feeling really at home with like this Web3 stuff and Ethereum and 
uh, it's it's just really cool to, to to see that happening, and I can't wait to see like what happens in the next few years. So, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Nader's awesome on Twitter, and you know, as he said, he's blogging a lot, so you can follow him on Twitter at dabit three. What's your what's your like um, uh, your blog URL or your like website URL? Yeah, I mean, I've been wanting to do like um, my own personal website again, but I haven't had one in a couple of years. And I, I just oh. let my old one go down because ma mainly I've been blogging on third-party platforms like Dev.2. Okay, perfect. So like yeah. Dev.2 is probably the main place you can find me. Awesome. Um, yeah, check out Free Code Camp as well. I have I have quite a few blogs on there as well. Awesome. And on my YouTube at uh, NatterDabbit, so slash C slash NatterDabbit. Yeah. Well, he has a lot of really amazing content too. Careful because he might try to steal your private key. Just kidding. But he can probably trust the content that he puts out. Um, thank you all for listening. Hope this makes you all, uh, you know, Web3 curious, blockchain curious, Ethereum curious, Solana curious. And uh, we'd love to hear what you're developing. So definitely let us know on the internet, on Twitter. You can find myself or Nacho on Twitter again, um, or Nader, and uh, we'll see you next time on the Modern One Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Nacho. Thank you, Tracy. Come on. Come on, everybody. This podcast is sponsored by This.Labs, a framework agnostic consultancy that specializes in JavaScript. You can find them at this.co slash labs. That's T-H-I-S-D-O-T dot C-O slash labs. We're all of your friends and